For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, Simon the Sorcerer is back. Loading NES games from a cassette tape. And we kick ass and chew bubblegum with John St. John. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every weekend with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, their latest book, which you can buy right now, is incredible. The King of Fighters ultimate history detailing one of the most important fighting game franchises of all time and with the help of snk itself so you can get that right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com and with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do features such as 3D printing and injection moulding, and they're massive supporters of the retro community. Get an instant quote right now for your project at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 328, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Rabbi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, the podcast that takes you on a journey into the classic age of video games. Of course, bringing you up to speed on all the big headlines in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days. And we are joined by an incredible guest in the second half of the show as well. Now, we'll talk more about our amazing guest, one of the best interviews I think we've ever done on this show in just a moment. Uh, First of all, Ravi, you must be feeling in a good mood today. Victorious after your uh, DJ battle using Commodore Amiga computers against the guy who wrote the software that you use. And I've got to say, a bit of a scene legend, you kicked Hoffman's butt last week <laughs> when you had a DJ battle with him. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mentioned last week on the show that I was going to a Workbench 2022, which is uh, an Amiga festival uh, run by Swag. And it was absolutely awesome. Good to see, you know, about 100 people there, which was pretty awesome. And Good to be at an event again, but um, I, I did win, but, you know, I kind of rigged the audience and we had a, an interesting setup because, as you mentioned, Hoffman did invent the software that I used and he had a new version of the software that I was totally unfamiliar with and it was also on his setup. So if you've ever oh, DJed... trying to catch you out. Yeah, if you've ever DJed, <laughs> DJing on someone else's setup is really tough. But um, we did a set and we tried to stream it on Amiga Bill's thing, but... Uh, the internet wasn't that good of quality. So we're actually going to release it. Um, there's video footage and the audio has been synced to that as well. So that's going to get released at some point and I will uh, let you guys know. I do know as well that there was quite a few retro hour listeners there and patrons as well. Do you think they were kind of on your side? Oh, Had you back yeah, it? That, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, just just get the retro hour and the Amiga Radic fans and then kind of <laughs> fill it out. <laughs> So yeah, commiserations Hoffman, well done Ravi on uh, you know, winning that DJ battle last week. Uh, but I mean, what a week it's been as well, fresh from that. I mean, you know, you just kept going. You and Joe did what I think is one of my favourite interviews that I've ever heard on this podcast. Now this week, um, we're not going to try and do the voice, let's let him do it. Oh yeah, baby, you're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast. If you don't, you're a dork. <laughs> 
You've got Duke Nukem on the show this week, John St. John. <laughs> yeah, it's it was such a good interview, wasn't it, Joe? I I I was laughing the whole way through it, and I'm sorry if I ruin it with my laughing and stuff, but I was like giddy when he first came on because when he came on before we started recording, he came on as Duke Nukem. And he was like, mm. and he he was like, he said he was excited because it was funny. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, I was like sitting here and doing it now, like kind of like, you know, when you're like, oh my God, I'm meeting a celebrity kind of thing. It's like, Duke Nukem. It's Duke Nukem. So, um, but it was really, really interesting. And um, credit to Ravi because Ravi was, you know, he's our, our superstar for getting our guests and stuff, you know, a lot of the time. And you reached out to him and got him and he was such a, a great guest. He was so on board and like, you know, Ravi, you did the questions as well. And you, I think you did a really good angle with it. You know, we kind of spoke about his, you know, his radio career and how he got into voice acting and stuff because of his self-admitted, he's not a massive gamer himself, but I think it was a really, really solid, fantastic interview Yeah, um, with, with the angle that you took with it. And it, it's uh, amazing because like, so we had Lani Manella previously mm. on the podcast and uh, she went down really well. She was a, a voice actor as well and producer. Yeah, and she yeah. actually went out and found Johnson John. So yeah. this kind of uh, interview is also a very audio-based one, and this works so well for podcasts because yeah. he, he did so many voices as well. It's like not only Duke Nukem, which was his first one, uh, there was Big the Cat in Sonic as well. Yeah, um, I, did, I, I didn't realise that he was Big the Cat. And, you know, we didn't even touch on the Marvel games, but he kind of mentioned he was like, oh, yeah, I was Captain America in, like, the Marvel games, Marvel vs. Capcom and stuff, and... We didn't really even get to touch on that because obviously we had so much to talk about with just, you know, Duke Nukem and Sonic and stuff. But um, he was such a team player as well. Like, you know, he was so like, you know, we didn't even ask him to do the retro hour quotes and stuff. He was like, oh, check this out, guys, and just did it. And I was literally there just like dying in my chair at how amazing it was that he just did that for us. So really, really, really amazing interview. Yeah, and I think, like you said, this kind of interview does lend itself well mm. to a podcast. Because I mean, he does all the voices yeah. of all the characters. That yeah, he loves, yeah, which he is does. Just amazing. <laughs> and it's it's interesting because it's kind of like a little sideline career to him. You know, he does like yeah. radio and stuff, and he didn't really feel the impact of Duke Nukem. You know, we felt it because we were gamers, and it was on so many systems and well known. He didn't even know it was that well known, and then turned up at a gaming event and got absolutely mobbed. So it's, yeah. it's really interesting to have it from his perspective. Yeah, he said he didn't yeah. he didn't realise for about five years that Duke Nukem was famous <laughs> like, until, <laughs> until he got mobbed at a gaming event, like you say. But um, really, really humble guy. Yeah, it was really amazing. Yeah, so Johnson John, Duke Nukem himself, is going to be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, lots of news stories, as always, to bring you up to speed on before we do the interview part of the show. Uh, I was quite pleased to read this as well. I mean, obviously, we've had uh, a bit of a good month if you're a fan of classic point-and-click adventure games. Obviously, we've had the, the Monkey Island revival that we talked about a couple of weeks back. But now, another classic point-and-click adventure franchise is making a comeback for the 21st century. Simon the Sorcerer is returning. Yeah, this looks pretty interesting. So this is a, a prequel to uh, Simon the Sorcerer series. Mm. So it's called Simon the Sorcerer Origins. And uh, it's a brand new game and it's uh, deeply rooted in the contemporary gaming world. So um, it's it's basically Simon when he was younger and uh, presented in a, in, a, in a new form. So he does look a lot younger in, in the um, game, but also it's, it's got these new graphics. Now, these graphics... We saw the Monkey Island trailer recently. 
So these kind of modern graphics in there and people always kick up a storm. But at the very beginning of the trailer, they say this isn't a representation of the actual final product. You know, things can change in there. And uh, the graphics are this kind of 2D art, but also with modern details on them. Uh, And, you know, there's uh, continuous cutscenes and stuff in there. But I've had a look at it and, you know... (laughs) Some of the way that Simon walks is is pretty unusual as well. What what do you think of the graphics, guys? I quite like the look of it. It reminds me of kind of like a storybook, a little bit, obviously not like Paper Mario, but that kind of like outline. It kind of looks like you know cardboard characters moving on a on a storybook. But I do know what you mean. There's there's not much animation in it at the moment, and maybe that's what they mean in terms of the visual representation. Obviously, they just wanted to get the trailer out and build the hype, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I like the look of it. I think it looks nice, and I think it's got a, like you say, it's got it's got a retro modern look to it. Do you know what I mean? It probably looks more modern than it looks retro, um, but I can I can tell where they're going with it. I think it looks good. And like the whole thing about Simon was also about having beautiful backgrounds and stuff mm. like that. Oh, yeah. So they'll probably work on them more. But this also reminds me of like the Leisure Suit Larry games, the recent ones that came out that were in this kind of modern style as well and they yeah. work quite well if the storyline's there and uh you know it's uh still got all the elements and uh it sounds like it has you know they've got all the characters in there calypso the the uh guide and mentor that he used to have it's got his dog in there you know it's it's gonna be released on the switch as well it's an original license um it's gonna be full of easter eggs and uh, a lot of comedy as well which um simon and sorcerer always had some decent comedy in there i think you know the graphics to me i mean some bits of it there are, there's like obviously a video that you can watch and i'll put that in the show notes and there's some screenshots as well that they've linked up in this um article on ign some of the kind of external shots remind me a bit of like a classic kind of disney look yeah you know, like the yeah. really old school like 50s disney movies it's got that kind of that appearance to it which i think you know if you're going down that kind of you know fantasia kind of you know route i guess that would kind of work for simon the sorcerer and i know you know you mentioned monkey island then and i don't think we talked about it on the show but I know that Ron Gilbert um, is kind of getting a bit fed up at some of the backlash from, you know, just that short trailer that he released. And he said, you know, he's making the Monkey Island game he wants to make, not, you know, trying to please the fans, as it were, really. So I think it's important that, you know, people don't look at these kind of early previews too much and kind of feed all this hate back to the developers. Because yeah. it must be quite, you know, when you're in this stage of making the game, just hearing all that negativity, you know, from people who... Yeah, you know, not that I'm saying people are stuck in the past, but people that don't want the graphics to move on past 1992. Getting angry over like two minutes of footage or something, yeah. you know, of what might not be the final product, you know. Um, yeah, I know I know exactly what you mean. And uh, I, think, I think this does kind of fit well to the Simon the world. It, uh, world. it would have been hard to do it old school pixely and stuff, but also then you'd have to maybe get the tone to exactly match the right one you'd maybe have to get chris barry in to do the voices i was going to um, ask that is chris barry going to be back that was going to be my biggest question because obviously he was a voice on the talkie versions you know the dos and the cd32 versions of the original sam the sorcerer wasn't it? I'd, I'd love him to be but um i don't think he will but um uh, you never know <laughs> like i've i've been a simon fan and like they did ruin the series a bit. I think there was Simon the Sorcerer 3D, which was not very good. You know, when everything went 3D. And mm. uh, that wasn't a very good title. So I hope there's a new one. And this uh, kind of, you know, engages the new generation of, of gamers and they can kind of 
explore the prequel and that may lead them to want to explore the main game. Because yeah, I played the original, I love that game, on the Amiga. Uh, and then, yeah, I had the CD32 version that had Chris Barry on it. And, you know, I, I thought that really took it to the next level because, you know, before that, I remember, you know, when you played an adventure game without talking, you'd have to either kind of make the voices up in your head or if you're playing with someone else like I did with my brother, uh, Germany had to do all the voices as well. So when you get the talky <laughs> ones, that was quite good. Um, I didn't play any after the first one, though, because I don't think the second one ever came out on It did eventually. It came out on the oh, Amiga, okay. but that was wicked. The second one was mm. really good as well. It was as good as the first, you know, and uh, had some really funny stuff, amazing secrets and uh, the wizard sordid and stuff, you know. It was great. But I think the glitch was like Simon the Sorcerer Pinball and Simon the Sorcerer 3D. Oh, really? So hopefully <laughs> this this kind of changes it. Yeah, so I just think it's great to see, you know, these franchises coming back again. I mean, as someone who's always loved adventure games, I mean, it's always been one of my favourite genres. So it is nice to see, you know, these uh, classic adventure games making a comeback again. So we'll keep an eye on that. And as we hear more, we will let you know. Now, one of the most interesting videos that I've seen over the last week was from a YouTuber called Sharopolis. Now, this is loading, uh, well, the title is NES Games. It's actually on the uh, on the Famicom from a cassette tape. Now, I thought this was quite interesting. I'd heard before, you know, that the original vision for the NES was that it was going to be a proper home computer, mm. you know, with built-in basic and everything, but kind of the angle changed, I guess, you know, probably a lot to do with... Um, you know, the console crash in North America and there'd been a, a big opportunity for consoles to come back there. And um, so, of course, it came out as a, as a console in the end. But they actually did release a keyboard and a cartridge that you could plug in to the Famicom. And it works with the NES as well in Japan. That really is that initial concept that they had for the NES, that it would be a full-on computer. So what he's got in this video, he's got a keyboard that plugs into the joystick port or the control port on the front of the Famicom and a cartridge that goes in the top that lets you load up a basic interpreter. And also on the mad. back of the keyboard, on the back of the keyboard as well, there's also a cassette input there as well. So really, you're running basic on an NES. So this was kind of seen as an educational pack right to help yeah. help people learn programming and stuff and uh, a lot of these games that came out for it are, are educational based or uh, you know very very simple stuff but they do load from cassette which is pretty amazing to see because you know british home computers we we were standard with cassettes right <laughs> because uh, yeah. they were a lot cheaper than getting the uh, floppy drives and stuff and uh yeah the we're really used to cassettes, so seeing something from Japan loading on cassette is a real novelty. And uh, apparently you can use this in the NES as well. Yeah, he said it should work with it. I mean, in the video, he only shows it on the Famicom. But again, I mean, that was kind of the vision, you know, were it to be a computer, as they originally envisioned it, it was going to ship with a cassette deck or, you know, just plug your own cassette deck into there. So it kind of shows you just how different it would have been. Because, I mean, if you watch this video... He's not loading in, you know, Zelda or Mario or anything like that. These are very simplistic games written in basic. Um, and I think it's quite cool that when it loads, you kind of get that, you know, like on the Commodore 64 or the Spectrum, those kind of decompressing flashy lines around the edge of the screen. Yeah. Um, you get that effect when it's loading up as well. But it really makes you realise, I mean, what a right choice it was to use cartridge for that system. You know, the games I just don't think would have been anywhere near the quality if it did, you know, resort to cassette tape. Yeah, not at all. These do look like basic games, but that one of them does feature Jumpman, aka uh, Mr. Mario, 
And <laughs> that's one called Crab Game. And there's f- quite a few. Oh, it's Pen Pen's one, Brick Brick Break, which is an Arknoid clone, and uh, Metal Arms. Yeah, well, yeah, there's not, loads of Nothing you've them. ever heard yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they're, and they're all seen to be like clones of something or like an attempt to sh- shoot them up and stuff. But it would be interesting to see if anyone can kind of hack together some kind of interface to load cassette tape stuff. But it is it is kind of just a little novelty, isn't it? But um, all shouts to this guy for actually finding some new content for the NAS because uh, that's pretty hard to do nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, and apparently these keyboards, I mean, I haven't seen any of these in the wild before, uh, but apparently, I mean, they go for like over $600 now if you want to get one of these uh, keyboards for the NES and the cartridge. Um, so, you know, they're quite rare and quite hard to get hold of. But it's interesting that they, uh, from what I've seen in this video, the only ever release is in Japan, which you think, you know, something like this might have been a success here in the UK when, you know, basic programming on computers was like... The in thing, wasn't it, in the mid-80s? Yeah, totally. Like, I, I, I'm totally clueless about the kind of whole basic scene in Japan and just, just even the computer scene, really. But, um, yeah, this, this is really interesting. Now, this is um, something very cool for um, <laughs> a system that not many people have much love for today. But you can now get, um, you can pre-order an external optical drive emulator for your 3DO. Now, this looks pretty cool. I mean, as, as someone who owns a 3DO, I think I've got to be the only one here that actually has a 3DO in my collection, yeah? Yeah, I don't have one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, this is, um, it's an optical drive emulator uh, that retails for $350 if you want the external export version of it. Now, there is an internal version as well for $250 that only works with the original, you know, the FZ1 Panasonic model okay. of the 3DO. Apparently, you don't need any soldering, though. And obviously, if you use the external version, you can still keep your original drive working in the 3DO as well. See, I'm going to do any kind of hardware modification to it as well. It does seem quite pricey, though. How expensive are 3DOs? That's the thing. Like, does it kind of match them in in, in price range, or or would it actually be more expensive than getting one of the consoles? Well, I mean, you need the console for this to work because, you know, this is a this is an add-on for the console yeah. anyway. Uh, but normally if you get something like this, I mean, really what it is, it's a little board that allows you to, um, you know, use a USB stick in place of the optical drive, which normally, you know, you see these kind of things on like the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation and stuff. Normally they're around the like $100 mark, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think this is quite expensive, but then it's very niche because yeah. it will be for people that want to save that drive and, you know, not use it so much. Um yeah, it's got USB storage, but it's also running off an SD card. And uh, interestingly, it, it supports um, the CD-ROM images in .bin, .iso, and .nrg, which uh, NRG is always one that's quite hard to kind of support. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm always converting them to ISOs and stuff like that. Yeah. And it does the uh, CD music as well, which is uh, pretty cool, the CDDA kind of stuff in a 16-bit stereo. So it looks like it's been well thought about. It's in a nice 3D printed case. And I guess for, you know, it's going to be a very limited group of people that want this. But um, Including Dan. Including Dan, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Dan, would it appeal to you at this price though? Well, that's the thing. I mean, my 3DO optical drive works fine. Mm. Last time I used my machine anyway, probably about a year ago. And the 3DO hasn't got any copy protection on it. Ah. So literally, you can just download the images and you know burn them. And and that's what I thought initially. I guess I mean Ravi kind of 
made me understand it a bit better. But I thought, why can't yeah, I'm guessing this is to pay you know to play pirated games on, but I'm sure you can just play copied games on the 3DO. Mm. But as Ravi said, it may be to protect that optical drive. You know, I get, I mean, I'm not too sure, but I can't. The 3DO is built very sturdily. Do you know what I mean? No, like, or, not not very well. Not the original ones, anyway. Yeah. But talking, I mean, people generally say if you want a 3DO, you know, there are the later ones. Mm. I think it's a gold star, like a top loader. A lot of people buy them because they tend to be a bit more reliable. I mean, I've been through, I'm on my second fz1 net now mm. i mean i got weirdly i actually got it really because i had a 3do but then i got a problem with the power supply yeah and it would just um randomly like shut down so i thought oh maybe it's a caps problem so i replaced i actually recapped it myself because it's all through hole you know it's quite easy to do and i got a new power supply off ebay still had the problem with it and i, was, I couldn't figure it out and then there used to be um a game store here in nottingham yeah i remember this yeah, so I went in and actually got one in there for like, I think it was like £50. I remember it was about selling. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, well, I'll just buy that and I'll use that, you know, if it works fine. It was all tested. Sold my original one on eBay, you know, with the caveat that there might be some problems with it. Actually ended up selling it for £80 on eBay, so made a profit. So, uh, and the 3D I bought since then has actually been fine, but they do have a, you know, a bit of a reputation for not always being the, the best built, almost reliable devices. Like, interestingly, if you get an American um, FZ1 3DO, there's actually a fan in there to cool it down. Right. But if you get the European version, there's a, a place for the fan and a place to pl- plug it in on the motherboard, but they didn't ship with one. <laughs> I guess you've got to put your own fan in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so many versions as well. It says the console must have a 30-pin extension port, um, which is uh, the export cable. It's RAM expansion. So, yeah, yeah. It kind of must come out of the back of there and you plug the cable in and then have it like a external kind of GoTech or something housed there. But yeah. And apparently it emulates, there's like um, an internal save game memory expansion that was only released in Japan called the export as well, which, you know, apparently it emulates that too. Um, It gives you 256K of save games slots, which is quite cool. Um, I just think, yeah, I mean, for me, I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's quite cool. I mean, the external one where I didn't have to take my drive out might have been something I considered because, you know, I don't know if you guys have noticed, I actually bought, um, so I'm probably the only guy that goes into my local Asda and buys, you know, packs of CDRs because <laughs> I use them quite often for like my old school computers. But the price of them seems to be going up now. You know, about five, six years ago, you could get a pack of like I can't say a hundred. I can't say I've noticed because I don't buy them. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that might be the reason why. I mean, you used to be, get a pack of, um, you know, like a really awful brand like, you know, Verbatim or whatever they're called. Yeah. Uh, from Asda, I think it was like a, a tower of 100 CDRs for a tenner. Mm. You could get about five years ago. Now they're doing um, like 10 of them for a tenner now. So the price of them, like, you know, a pound a disc. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm in the charity shop, so I get loads of them all the time. I'll be like, right, I should Keep buy them all down. up. Yeah, I'm still getting uh, blank cassette tapes uh, still packaged. Well, I think it's like anything, isn't it? It's like, you know, I know floppy disks now are becoming harder to source. I know there are websites where they sell new old stock, but kind of in the wild, I remember Staples, which is a stationery store. I think it you know, might close down now here in the UK a couple of years ago. The one near here was actually still selling new floppy disks, you know, kind of that have been on the shelf for 10 years until about 2019. Um, so I just went in and bought like, you know, five, six boxes of them. They're selling about four pounds. But now, you know, just seeing floppy disks in the wild, it's not something you see now, Especially is it? Especially so not they kind uh, of become- double density as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. They become specialist items, so the prices go up. So, uh, yeah, it might be an option. I mean, you know, if the price of CDs is going to go up, you know, 
then it might be something that we look at, you know, for, for replacing our optical drives a bit more. But I think just at that price, I mean, if it was like, you know, maybe 80 euros or something, I probably would have bought one, but $350, a bit steep for a system that I don't play all that much. But um, I know there are some dedicated 3DO fans out there. There's actually a pretty lively community on Reddit of 3DO fans. And there's actually, I saw like a prototype unit of the um, the M2 was on eBay oh, wow. the other day. I think it was, try- it was on a buy it now price of around $3,000. Um, so I'm not sure if that's sold at the moment, but it does kind of feel like, because, you know, I, I think it gets to the stage where all the kind of mainstream consoles, everyone knows everything about them. So maybe there is kind of a, a lean towards the more obscure stuff and, you know, renewed interest from people that maybe didn't play them first time around. True. Or that might just be my, my wishful thinking maybe to, uh, if I ever sell a, another 3DO, that might get more than 80 quid for it. You never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to get hold of a, an optical drive emulator for your 3DO, pre-orders are available right now. And uh, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, the Retro Hour comes out every single Friday, and that is a big thank you to our incredible community of patron supporters. Now, we do say it all the time, we really could not do this show without your support. So if you enjoy what we do, I mean, you know, I appreciate not everybody can. There are lots of ways that you can help us out. But if you can, you know, throw a couple of euros, a couple of dollars, a couple of pounds into the tip jar on our patron each month, you know, it can be as little as a cup of coffee each month just to help us keep the lights on and help us pay the bills. That is massively appreciated. And of course, for doing that, you get a load of perks as well, don't you, Joe? (laughs) You put me on the spot here. You you do get a lot of perks. One of my favourite perks that you get if you are our level two Patreon is our After Hours podcast, which is essentially a second podcast, which we do once a Mm. month. So um, we've recently covered the N64 episode, which is actually coming out this week, where a lot of people used to ask, you know, what about your opinions on these consoles? Or what about, you know, your guys' history in gaming and stuff like that? That's essentially what the after hours is for you know we kind of interview each other we talk about you know one of the ones we do is kind of like our years in gaming we recently covered 2005 and like i say this week we've covered the n64 which was a really really fun episode so if you want to hear me yammer on about my memories of the n64 that's where you want to be but we also do um we do ad free episodes um sometimes you get the episode a little bit earlier in the week if dan manages to get it done because he's a very very busy guy Um, and then also another thing that i know you guys absolutely love is the patron hangout which we do about once a month on a sunday evening where we literally everybody gets together everybody who's welcome on the patreon and we literally just do a virtual hangout and it really is just like a pub hangout we've just done one this sunday just gone and uh, <laughs> I won't go into too much detail, but it really was like a laugh. You know, it was like sitting with the boys in the pub, wasn't it? It was a really, it was really, quite really funny. funny one. one thing I loved was uh, people were talking about celebrities that they've met, and like, yeah, people were whipping out the cheesy photos of them, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, with, yeah, with like total random celebrity. I think one was the Chuckle Brothers. Um, yeah (laughs) it's a really good laugh when we were chatting about like old internet service providers um, Mm. just just tons of stuff and uh yeah it's it's such a nice little community and i I just really enjoy that and you can join it by uh joining patron yeah it's gonna do another one in a couple of weeks time so if you're getting there on patreon this weekend good time to do it the n64 um after us podcast you'll get that it's about an hour and a half as well and we go into um like our personal top five games on the n64 that i think out of all the ones we've done that was one of the most difficult lists to compile it was it, my mind. it was one of those most diverse lists as well because mm. sometimes we have a lot of repeat games you know like my number one might be ravi's number three and 
Yeah. It might be your number two or something. But this one, I think there was only like one or two games that made it, you know, multiple times onto our list. So, you know, considering the N64 hasn't got that big of a library, it just goes to show how good that library was. Yeah, definitely. So uh, if you join us on Patreon right now, you're going to get that this weekend. It's already available to our backers. And also you get invited to the next Patreon's Hangout. You get the normal episodes early ad free. You also uh, get extra content. We normally do an extra like two or three news stories just for our patrons each week as well. So if you want to get access to the secret part of the show, uh, you can back us on Patreon right now. All the details are at theretrohour.com. No new backers this week, so unfortunately we can't hear your singing, Ravi, I'm afraid. Oh, no. That's another perk as well. That's another another perk, isn't it? Yeah, you you get to hear Ravi singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah Ravi's singing God. next week. So. <laughs> You'll put them the off. TheRetroHour.com. <laughs> if you'd uh, like to back us on Patreon, we'd hugely appreciate it. Now, before our interview this week with John St. John, uh, let's get into a couple more news stories now. Now, you're very excited about this new collection of games that's coming out on the Switch next month. Yeah, this is the Klonoa collection. Um, I love that they called it the collection because there's only two games on it, but still really cool. Um, I know you guys aren't too familiar with Klonoa, though, are no. you? I, I like recognise the images from it. But and and actually the font that's yeah. what I recognise, but I don't know what it is at all. <laughs> so Klonoa, it's a, a very Japanese game. It was a an action platformer, puzzler platformer for the PS One. Um, in 1997, it came out. It's called Klonoa: Door to Phantom Mile, I believe is how you say it. Kind of in the vein of like you know these kind of like 2.5D platformers. A side-along platformer, but with 3D sprites and some 2D sprites and stuff like that. I really, really... Ah, kind of like the Pandemonium style. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, that's a really good game to compare it to, actually. Really, really fun game. Now, unfortunately, I've not played the PS2 version, um, but there was a sequel for the PS2, Klonoa 2. I think it was called Klonoa 2 Lieta's Veil or something like that. Lunity's Veil, I think it was. Um, I've not played that one myself, but these are going to be coming to the Switch on the 8th of July and the worldwide release, physical releases, which is really cool as well. And you guys know me. I absolutely love my retro games on new consoles, you know, new retro mm. essentially. So I'm definitely going to be picking it up, but um, it's going to be running at 60 frames per second, uh, which I think is really cool. And it's going to be in full 1080p when the switch is docked and 720p in handheld mode. So it's a really beautiful PlayStation game as it is. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it, you know, in that kind of like updated graphics and just it's a really, really nice, colourful, bright, fun game. If I remember rightly, it's quite a tough game, but it's something, you know, it's the kind of game like my daughter's almost two. It's the kind of game I'd like her to watch me play. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a really nice, cutesy game. Kind of hard to describe Klonoa. He's kind of like a a dog rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> with the biggest ears you've ever with, seen. Yeah, with big ears. The actor's and wings, yeah. The actor's wings. And it's a Namco game, you know, he's got a little Pac-Man on his hat. Um, so really, really fun game that I'm looking forward to playing again. And like I say, I've never played the second one, so it'll be cool to, you know, check that out as well. It but, reminds um, me of, um, you know, those bonus levels in Crash Bandicoot as well. Yes, yeah. You know what? When I was trying to describe it, I was kind of like, a little bit like the level, the two, like the side along levels in the early Crash Bandicoot games. That was kind of like what was going through my head, um, and it was around the same time, you know, you know, I'd like to say early PS One days, but probably ninety seven mid PS One games. But it's good to see some love for him because it's like I say, it's been about twenty years since he's had a game, and I was actually in Smythe's the other day with my daughter you know, the toy shop, and I saw the pre-order box for it on the side, and I was like, no way, it's Klonoa. 
And my wife was just like, what on earth are you on about? Like, who is a gamer? <laughs> like, she was like, who knows Klonoa? And I was like, the rabbit dog guy with the big ears, <laughs> like, kind of thing. So, um, so that's how you found out then? In a that is shop. actually how I found out in a toy shop that, you know, they were coming back. So, but yeah, one I'm going to pick up definitely. because This trailer looks great. It looks so clean. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I don't know, just the style that they've done it in. It just, it just seems really clean and like it. It just seems, it looks solid. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's, it's, but, yeah. it's hard to describe, but it is. And, you know, the whole mechanic of the game as well is it's it's kind of based around, the, it's based around like you grab enemies and jump off them, if that makes sense. It's not like Mario where you just bounce off an enemy. Like you have to grab enemies. If I remember rightly with your ears, I could be wrong about that, but you grab them and you kind of like ground pound off them, you know, like for the platforming and stuff. Yeah. So it, it's it's got a really unique style of playing to it as well. And, you know, a lot of the, the levels, even though they're platformers, the camera kind of spins with you as you play it. Like if you're running around a tower or, you know, it's just a really beautiful looking game. You know, I'd, I'd say go check out some YouTube videos or, you know, some kind of reviews of it and stuff before, you know, just going out and picking it up to see if it's your cup of tea. But really, really beautiful looking game. Do you guys think it's time I should get a Switch? I think it is. <laughs> yeah. So much good stuff that we cover on That this. time was five years ago. <laughs> no, I think, I'm a I think, bit retro. And, I, I, and, you know, we are the retro, but I think it is a good time to get a Switch. You know, I'm I'm loving my Switch at the moment. Yeah. And I'm loving they, my Wii U, but like, yeah. the Switch, they, they, yeah, they, it just looks cool. So we'll uh, link up that if you want to read more and uh, check out the trailer. That'll be in our show notes, along with all the other stories at theretrohour.com. Now, this next story, I know it's probably something Ravi is tremendously excited about. You can now use Lotus 123 on your modern Linux machine. Now, do you remember Lotus 123? I, I, I remember Lotus 123. I remember WordStar as well. Uh, we, we were more into WordStar, obviously, because we weren't doing that many spreadsheets. But um, yep. Lotus, <laughs> Lotus was the old spreadsheet one, and it was an industry standard about 39 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, before Excel really came along and yeah. took the throne. And VisiCalc um, was uh, also another one, wasn't it? Or was that, that, now, that was before and then it went into That was on the Apple II, I think. Okay. Yeah, VisiCalc. Um, but this story's in there because Joe said we needed a computer story, so... Uh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did the news this week obscure. and I was like, it's very console-heavy, guys. Go f- go find me a computer story. And y- you did. <laughs> it is pretty cool, though. Admittedly, very geeky. Now, um, I'm sure you're not going to be aware of Lotus 1, 2, 3, Joe. You know, kind of been before your time. It really had its uh, heyday. Well, all of us, really. Uh, uh, 1983 was it. I, I, am aware of Lo- I am aware of Lotus, yeah. <laughs> We kind of hung around a bit because I remember at university, I think, no, we used Word, but I think we had like Lotus Notes and stuff. There was like a cloud version of it mm. um, that I think was still developed for a while. I mean, it says here the last release was in 2002, so that would kind of make, make sense. Um, but obviously, you know, Excel and Microsoft Office came along, just completely wiped the floor with it. Uh, but it turns out that there was a apparently quite hard to find beta version of Lotus 123 that they made for Unix back in the day. Now, there is, um, obviously, you know, Linux is kind of, it was an open source version of Unix, wasn't it, really? I mean, you know, there's going to be massive Linux enthusiasts now who who I'm sure will correct us on the exact terminology in in the YouTube comments. But really, that's what it was designed to be, like an open source replacement for Unix. And Unix is kind of what, you know, all the... um, The basis of everything, pretty much, Unix is. And even Windows nowadays is a Unix as well, so... Well, back in the day, Unix was, you know, what they ran on mainframes and you'd get, you know, very intelligent 
beardy guys in uh, you know uh, thick rim glasses and white coats generally using these machines and uh, you know kind of the, the foundation of computer science really back in the day uh, but they did actually do this version of um, Lotus 123 that I don't think ever came out on Unix or it was very hard to find but this guy here and I'll link up the entire blog in our show notes because it is uh, is really long but there's actually a little demo video of it running as well so this guy went on to um, some archives and he found what was some disk images from uh, an old BBS, and he found this very hard-to-find version of Lotus 123 yeah, for Unix. It's, it's, uh, it's an actual Wares version as well, which is Wares was yeah. the old name for piracy, and I love, I love what he's got on the screenshot here. It's a professional software exchange, no games, no lamers. And <laughs> it says, by unzipping this, you agree to abide by all copyright laws in the USA. So, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. It seemed that it, it kind of leaked or it was uh, put onto this BBS and then uh, somebody's now rejigged the version of it. Yeah, so what he's done is, because, you know, with Linux kind of being, you know, at its foundation, Unix-based, turns out it wasn't actually that much work for him to go in there, kind of do some tweaks and actually get this uh, very obscure version of Lotus 123, this AT spreadsheet running on a modern Linux distribution. So if you go all the way to the end of this vlog here as well, you know, there's a massive article that goes on for about 10 pages, but he's got it running on um, Fedora, you know, modern Linux distribution. So you can actually use this um, obscure Unix version of Lotus 123 on your modern computer. You know, this might be cool. useful, man. There might be companies that still have records and yeah. accounts on the old version of Lotus 123. And need something to run it on a modern system and uh you know this this could be useful <laughs> you know it's, it's it's pretty interesting actually even from a personal perspective i mean there's got to be a lot of people out there with maybe you know a bunch of floppy disks in the attic that they used to use to do their accounts on yeah, you know or, yeah. or spreadsheets or whatever that they can now load up an archive using this so i think it's definitely got a place um i think he's got kind of a semi-working version of it and um, there's some problems as well but um, i'm sure i'll stick it on archive.org when it's finished so if you want to see this uh, kind of work in progress as well uh, very geeky but i think very very cool as well i'll put that in our show notes as well you'll find it all at the retrohour.com now can we take a moment to show some love to our incredible mates at bitmap books now bitmap books have been our longest supporter of this show haven't they Pretty much since the beginning, they've been oh, one of our sponsors. Oh, for sure, yeah. They, they were even contacting us uh, in the very early days, yeah. And uh, yeah. even pre-sponsorship and uh, showing a lot of love for the show. Yeah, so Sam and the team have always been massive supporters. And uh, we love working with them as well because, I mean, they do the best retro gaming books. And uh, this, their latest title has just gone on sale now, looks like one of their best books yet. Now, this is The King of Fighters, The Ultimate History. Now, I don't know if you're here in the in the West, I mean, whether many of us actually played King of Fighters, but obviously we know just what an important fighting game series it is. And you're probably outside the UK, one of the biggest in the world as well. Oh, God, yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest fighting games in the world. And like like you say, it's probably not as big in the UK. We got them, you know, for, we did get them for the PS1 and the Sega Saturn and stuff like that. But reading this book, you don't kind of realise how influential it was, you know, and obviously it mm. came from like SNK and stuff like that. But honestly, just like looking at this book, it starts off with like Fatal Fury and it goes through all the King of Fighter games and it goes all the way up to King of the Fight King of Fighters 15 um, and even covers some Street Fighter and stuff because obviously there's a little bit of a crossover there and stuff like that. But 
there's literally over 500 pages all about this, which is just insane when you think about it, like how big this series is. Yeah, and that's the thing as well. I mean, and as with the other SNK books that Bitmap Books have done, like on the Neo Geo and Metal Slug as well, mm. they've actually worked with SNK, so it's officially endorsed by mm. them as well. And there's also a special all-star edition too, which if you're a fan of it, I mean, there's pictures of it on Bitmap Books' website, the amount of stuff that it comes with. Oh, Seriously, yeah. it's like an essential buy if you're a fan of uh, King of Fighters. So that's available right now. And like all their books as well, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's got that high-quality, edge-to-edge lithographic print. I mean, you know, we've all got Bitmap Books books in our collections. They just jump off the page, oh, the special gosh, yeah. links that they use. Yeah. yeah and those are really high-quality hardbacks as well. So if you want to get one of those, you'll also get a free PDF of viewing on the go as well. You can order that right now, The King of Fighters, The Ultimate History, and check out the rest of their retro gaming books. And of course, show our sponsors some love because they really help us out too. You'll find their website at bitmapbooks.com right then next it is time to talk to the man himself the voice behind duke nukem our special guest john st john is next on the retro hour podcast don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by march 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year TurboTax makes them count That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with the voice of Duke Nukem, John St. John. How are you doing, John? I've got balls of steel. <laughs> I, I'm, I I'm quite that. well, thank you. I thought you might appreciate a little Duke <laughs> intro there. You know? uh, we, could, you, could, could you say, shake it, baby? Shake it, baby. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Hail to the king, baby. I've got oh. balls of steel. Balls, balls, balls of steel. <laughs> oh, that was three balls. That makes me an oddball, I guess. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, that was the old soundboard as well, wasn't it? That was a yeah, yeah, Duke yeah. soundboard at one point. Anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll start the interview with the first question that we always ask, which was, uh, what was your like first video game that you ever saw or your oh. first kind of video game experience? Oh, well, I'm older than you guys. It was Pong. That was the first one I saw. And then, uh, let's see, what game did I... The first video game that ever... Well, arcade games, obviously. There were no home Mm. games when I first started playing video games. Um, Gosh, Defender was really fun. Um, I I, I can't remember the names of some of those old games. But, um, yeah, the arcade games were what I started with. And, And incidentally, one of my first voiceover gigs was for an arcade game. Oh, really? Oh, which game was that? I was uh, Captain America in the original Marvel versus Capcom. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. In the, mm-hmm. uh, the And then uh, Marvel. Yeah, in Marvel the Avengers, I was uh, a few voices. Somebody else was Captain America in that one. But, you know, they, they, they swapped around the uh, roles considerably back 
back then, just like uh, Sega did with uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know. Yeah. They recast every damn time they do a project, basically. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we, we, we didn't know that, so that, that's awesome. So mm-hmm. you, um, are we right in saying you started out in radio then initially? I did. How, how did you get into radio? Oh, um, well, it, this goes back to 1975. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you weren't even a gleam in your daddy's eye. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> no, you were not. Um, but I was, uh, I was in junior high school. I mm. was uh, 14 years old. And uh, that year, George Carlin, the comedian, had an album called FM and AM. And I would go to school and, and mimic, you know, George, George Carlin, down to the wonderful white O radio, you know, and all the kids at school said, God, you sound like you should be on the radio. Why don't, why don't you get a radio job? So yeah. one Saturday afternoon, I wandered down to a local radio station where I lived back in that day. And um, they hired me on the spot. Well, it was like it was that easy. America's the biggest audio consumer in the world. And I, I think there must have been a lot of these kind of silly voices and impressions and stuff we had a kenny everett and the uh, goonies here like back in the days so, w- mm-hmm. were there any radio people that you were looking up to oh absolutely and first of all r.i.p kenny um yeah uh george carlin who uh, i don't know if he ever had radio experience or not but uh, for me it was gary owens from um i don't know if you know that name he was a dj in los angeles and he was on a tv show a network tv show called uh, rowan and martin's laugh in and mm. and Gary would say stuff like the Geo Show on KMPC, where we never put a cobra in our neighbor's shower. Nerney, nerney, <laughs> you know, silly shit like that. Yeah. And um, I I loved listening to his voice. He always had his hand on his ear, and and he talked like this. It was Gary Owens, and uh, he was one of my influences too. And uh, incidentally, later in life, when I worked in Los Angeles, I actually finally got to meet Gary Owens. Mm. And he was a wonderful gentleman. Uh, he passed away a few years back too, but uh, just one of the nicest guys you could ever know. Yeah, because like uh, uh, I remember, Weird Al also started on on radio and was doing kind of Weird similar Al. stuff. Yeah, and I have a tie into him too. Weird Al Yankovic is who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he and I started doing parody songs about the same time, back around 1980, 81. And the first time I ever heard Weird Al, I think it was on the Doctor Demento show. And then I got a song on the Dr. Demento show. And then I introduced him at one of his very first ever concerts on Cape Cod back in 1981. Oh, wow. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we had an interesting tie in there. Yeah, yeah. And now he's a multi-million record, multi-million selling record. And he's got film coming out about him and everything. That's Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and quite deserving, too. I, I just mm. I, I love Weird Al. I think he's one of the yeah. most creative people I've ever known. Oh yeah! When you mentioned uh, Doctor Demento, then I kind of thought, yes, yes, and uh, mm-hmm. do a bit like Weird Al history because with, with the gamers, Weird Al was like we were all sharing MP3s and stuff, right. like, you know, yeah. his his parodies, yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you got the job at radio and stuff like that. What what kind of happened next? Did you have any sort of like vocal training or any sort of like formal training with it, or were you just winging it, just you know, being yourself, you know, just trying to be funny? You know, initially, I was just trying to, you know, as a young guy in radio, I just wanted to have a big voice, right? Because mm. I probably sounded like this. And um, I, I, I eventually started doing character voices when I was a, a morning radio host. And then also uh, through my 45 plus year career, I was a production director for radio groups, meaning I was making all the commercials. But, you know, if you're the the production director and you're working for a radio station where you're doing all the commercials, you can't have the same voice spot after spot after spot, right? Yeah. 
And since I was doing most of the voicing of those commercials, I would change my voice for different deliveries, different clients. Mm. And uh, that way it didn't sound like the same guy talking over and over again on each commercial. And uh, that was very good vocal training for me there. And then doing impressions of uh, famous characters uh, for morning radio shows that really helped me build up my chops. Mm. And uh, that that's where my vocal training came from. <laughs> OJT, on-the-job training. Yeah. And by the way, if I sound a little uh, stuffy to you, I, I am. I, I have a cold. I'm getting over a head cold today. So oh, I couldn't say I know. If you're going to have a cold, get a head cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we interviewed uh, La- Lani Manella. And, <gasps> Did uh, you? Yeah, and she she had some amazing kind of range in history. And, and she also said that um, you guys had kind of met and uh, she helped, you know, funnel you into the video game industry. How, how did she you did. end up meeting and like, uh, what's your kind of relationship together like working over the years? Well, you know what? It was, um, I guess, 1994 or 95. I was a mm. production director at a radio station in San Diego. And Lonnie lives in San Diego, so uh, happenstance there. You know, she happened to come into the studio one day to record an auto dealer ad. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I was producing the spot for her. And um, during mic check, you know, checking the levels and such, she started doing all these wacky voices. And I went, wow, you have very good vocal range. And then I started doing wacky voices. And she said, wow, you have very good vocal range. Would you be interested in acting in video games? To which I said, what? video games there's no voiceovers in video games she said well there's about to be and there's this game called duke nukem 3d maybe you'd be interested in and that is how we met just like that and she got me that job basically by connecting me with uh, george broussard at 3d realms and i auditioned for the part and landed it on the spot oh wow so how how did that feel like our next question was were you aware there was a video game voiceover industry but you know, obviously you weren't, you weren't aware. And like you say, there wasn't yeah. really m- much of one kind of like pre nineties. So what was that experience? Like all of a sudden you you Duke Nukem, like, you know, did your world turn upside down or was it just a new gig? You know, you'd think it would have turned upside down, but, but the funny thing is I didn't know anybody was even buying or playing the game for probably mm. six or seven years after it came out. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I only knew of that because I got an inv- uh, an invite to uh, be a guest at a convention. And I said, oh, wow, you guys know the Duke Nukem game? And they went, mm. oh, my God, yeah, are you kidding? So <laughs> I didn't know anybody even played it. And I show up at this convention, and I was mobbed by fans mm-hmm. and uh, surprised that they, uh, they took to me like that. So, uh, yeah, initially, I, I didn't even know it was a thing. Well, um, I was I was wondering because I saw on your credits that you'd done a uh, big red racing as well, and oh yeah, uh, that that was like one of those early big three D kind of titles when technology started to change, and I guess they could fit vocals in there. Um, how did you get involved with that? Same same thing again, Lonnie Manella. You know, I guess uh, that that was among the first games I did. Now, uh, several of the early games, uh, Duke Nukem 3D, uh, the Big Raid Racing, and um, what was the other one? Oh, the Candyland game. Remember, mm. Hasbro's Candyland board game was adapted to CD-ROM. Yeah. And uh, Lonnie was instrumental in getting me into all of those games. And then everything snowballed from there on. So I really owe, you know, my voice acting career to her. Mm-hmm. And you um you entered the video game industry, you know, like you say, it was around ninety four. So just as CD ROM really began, you know, to become really big and really huge and kind of the standard format for video games, 
how did CD change the audio industry? Did you know was it a huge change for you as like a radio you know radio producer and stuff? Not so much. I mean, CD-ROM at the time was really just a video game format. Mm. We were we we were not even burning CDs with audio in radio at mm. that time. You know, um, I guess it was a di- digital audio production for me. See, I'm old school, so I was an expert at uh, splicing tape and multi-track yeah. punch editing and all that such. So um, I guess it was around 1994, 95 that uh, Saw was the first uh, audio uh, editing program, nonlinear editing program I ever worked with came along and the radio station provided me with that stuff. And um, so, no, we we weren't even burning CDs at that time. So the CD-ROM, um, I, I think that's the question you're asking. Was I familiar with it or using it? Only for video games, mm. basically. Yeah, I, I guess it was a, a kind of storage thing because, you know, floppy disks, you just couldn't get get the amount of stuff in there. So the, right. the, the gaming industry must have just jumped on CD-ROM. Like, oh, yeah, away. I do remember, though, that the shareware was like the Duke uh, shareware was on a floppy disk initially. Yeah, yeah, until the Atomic Edition came out on CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. Well, what was 3D Realms like in those days? Did you kind of get to visit the studio and uh, actually see the game that you were you were voicing? You know, I didn't um, because back in the day, there wasn't the budget for that kind of thing. To bring me out there, they didn't do that. And then in the late 90s and up until about 2010, 2011, I was traveling all the time to go to uh, various studios around the country. Um, and now, of course, post-pandemic, we're not traveling to studios hardly at all anymore. I'm doing everything from home. So were you surprised like how adult some of these games that you were working on? Obviously, Duke Nukem, you know, at the time was a violent game, you know, and all of a sudden video games were appealing to teenagers and older gamers rather than kids. Did that surprise you or did you know that was happening? I was tickled by it. <laughs> mm. I knew I knew from the dialogue that I was recording that, uh, you know, this was a uh, a, a young person's uh, kind of yeah. realm. And uh, no, I embraced it. I loved it. I, I love the characters that I've played. I've I've gotten to play some really raunchy characters in my career, and I have no problem with that. I kind of enjoyed it. And, and was it kind of like, oh, this industry's matured a bit. It's got out of just kids and... Uh... You know, oh yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, and 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 that whole approach of seeing like, oh yeah, you know, I, and stuff like that. Yeah, know? keep in mind, I've been in the industry from a time when RPG meant uh, rocket propelled grenade, not role playing game. <laughs> so, so you know, it's developed over the years, and of course, uh, games are more complex now. The the backstory, everything, so much more complex than they ever were in the early days. So uh, the work being done today, I, I'm, I'm, I really admire it. Uh, game developers have come a long way since I started. Well, I was wondering about Duke Nukem because Duke, how, how did you kind of approach it? Because Duke was in this really weird world with uh, you know futuristic <laughs> stuff and uh, uh, pigs that he was fighting and uh, you know strip clubs. What, what was the kind of brief that you ended up getting? Uh, they told me that there was going to be some. Um, some stuff that might be objectionable as a voice mm. actor. And I looked at the script and I said, Oh no, I I'll say anything you want to pay me for. Not a problem. Mm. You know, um, I, I, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was all comedic. And most of the lines that uh, Duke sort of made famous were stolen from other projects, you know, from mm. Rowdy Roddy Piper and from Bruce Campbell. 
And I, um, I was literally about to say they live with uh, Roddy Piper. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think they uh, they both uh, were amused uh, at the fact that uh, the Duke Nukem character made those lines even more famous. Mm. Um, you know, they delivered them originally in their projects, but uh, Bruce Campbell to this day, I think, hates me for that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he likes of... I don't think he likes hearing me say hail to the king, baby. Oh, <laughs> well, I was going to say, how how much was it based on like the evil dad and that kind of really like camp horror kind of uh, yeah, <laughs> genre, it, you know, over the top stuff? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't just their projects either. A lot of the stuff in Duke Nukem games was stolen from Hollywood. That was the whole point. You know, mm. they weren't trying to rub anybody the wrong way. It was just silly, funny to steal lines from other projects and, and make them Duke's own, you know? Yeah. And, and and it kind of had the fun of those movies. You know, a lot yeah. of people would watch those movies just for the like outrageous scenes and the, exactly uh, really yeah. bad enemies and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you get much free reign when it came to Duke? You know, did you add any lines yourself? You know, was there anything you're in the booth and you just, you know, in the moment started saying some funny one liners and stuff? Or was it all pretty much scripted? This is what we need you to say. Well, since that was so early on um, mm. in in the industry in general, uh, no, I did not. I, I stuck to the script. I did not mm. ad lib at all mm. until I became more comfortable as a voice actor doing video games. And um, so now today when I do projects, uh, they ask me to ad lib. I'm free to, you know, reword the script the way that works best for me. Or if it's, you know, Duke Nukem stuff, which, by the way, you know, it's been over a decade since a Duke Nukem game came out, but mm. I'm still weekly recording Duke Nukem voiceovers for various projects and cameos and all that kind of stuff. So that speaks volumes about the character, yeah. I think, that uh, he was so popular that today I'm still making money doing the Duke Nukem voice, even though there's no video game to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's he's in so many just background things and compilations and even in, you know, films and, you know, I think it was he in Wreck-It Ralph and, you know, in the background and stuff like that. He's such a, a huge icon when it comes to gaming and stuff like that so it must be really cool to still be able to do that like you say 10 years after a game came out and what 25 27 years since he started right and and now my duke nukem voice is um uh training voice pack for league of legends oh, yeah. um from uh that company get good yeah, um, yeah dot ai that's pretty cool too when you you can have a character that you grew up with maybe or a character that you've admired instructing you on how to play the game to win Mm. I, I think that's pretty cool. And uh, am I right in saying that you've done a few weddings as a uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have, actually. I decided uh, a few years back to uh, become an ordained minister when uh, one of my dear friends who uh, is uh, a, a musician asked me if I would uh, perform their wedding ceremony. And I said, why? Because I'm Duke Nukem? And he goes, no, but think about that. What if Duke Nukem, what if you did that voice? And I went, oh. Okay, so I, I put it on Twitter, and it went viral, and I've done uh, a whole bunch of weddings in the voice of Duke Nukem, and I'm booking some again this year, now that the pandemic is kind of easing off. And uh, I, I think that's funny, that people want to get married with the voice of Duke as their ordained minister, but now it can happen, and I'm doing them. It, it, and that's awesome. It, I was going <laughs> to say, it must be crazy to think, if you could go back to yourself, you know, 30 years ago or 27 years ago when Duke first came out and tell yourself, you know, you're going to be 
ordaining weddings in the Duke Nukem voice. You know, people are going to love it that much that they want that to happen. You just you I wouldn't could, believe it. <laughs> I could never have imagined in a million years that this would happen. Well, the original Duke Nukem, uh, I just said it came out on PD on floppy disk and also mm-hmm. like, you know, on different systems like the N64 and stuff. What was it like kind of hearing the compressed version of the sound and, uh, you know, with limited space, there was, you know, a bit lower quality for the, uh, <laughs> the old samples. Yeah. yeah. I always found that very funny, you know, the squishiness of S's, for instance. Um, you know, everything sounded so different. The quality was so poor back then. And uh, gamers got so used to hearing it that way that when we did Duke Nukem Forever and other voiceovers, people were saying, did they change the actor? It's like, no. <laughs> it's just now you're finally hearing full quality audio instead of that really bit crushed, you know, 8-bit quality sound that was so awful. It, it was like close to close to phone uh, kind yeah. of stuff. And it's hard, hard to recreate that sound nowadays, uh, even with like... The compression of the early internet, it was very mm-hmm. different. To, I, to I still do it, however. Early. I still bit crush uh, when I do cameos, for instance. I ask uh, people, fans who buy from me, I'll say, do you want high quality audio for this or do you want it to sound like original Duke Nukem 3D? And most of the time they want it crushed to that 8-bit sound. So I have a processor that does that just fine. Sounds like the original uh-huh. game. So was was gaming like another world to you, like... Did you realize how big the games industry was was becoming, you know, like following in the footsteps of like titles like Doom? Did did you expect it to become so big? Did you know this was happening or like I kind of, you know, like I said earlier on, it was just another gig for you? Well, it was just another gig at the beginning. I didn't Mm. expect anything until, like I said, that first convention appearance where Mm. I I showed up and there are other voice actors there with fans showing up and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're long lines at the registration table to get in and see us. And I'm like, wow, this is something. People are into video games and and they like the voice actors. Mm. Um, I was just amazed by it. I I didn't think that was ever going to happen. I I was wondering, like, with 3D Realms, did you ever meet um, the designer of the engine? Because within games, there's a bit of a kind of race uh, between engines. And back then it was Doom. Uh, versus the build engine and that was a uh, ken silverman who who created it and uh it's pretty impressive he created it when he was about 13 14 and then wow. it grew into wow. into the duke nukem engine he was a coding kid but as far as game engines go i didn't know what that term even meant in, until about 10 years ago so <laughs> game engines <laughs> meant nothing to me i was i was not a young geek kid at the time mm-hmm. i was already 34 years old when duke nukem came out Mm. Um, so, and I played the game. I like video games. I've always played video games, but you know, I never knew, uh, the background on them at all. Until, yeah. Uh, you he, know, a few years he back. created that when he was kind of 13 and then, uh, it's amazing. It software, the guys who did doom, you know, basically his rivals helped him out and then mm-hmm. developed it to that level. But, um, I was wondering with 3d realms as well, did you have any experience with like shadow warrior or any of the other, uh, titles that they created? Oh, I, my brother, my oldest brother and I were huge Shadow Warrior fans. We would play, you know, online matches all the time. Back in the day, the old dial-up modem. Remember how oh, yeah. awful that was? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were on, we were on opposite sides of, of the U.S. He was in Virginia, me out here in California. But we would, every Saturday morning, we would connect and play Shadow Warrior. 
and just got the biggest kick out of it. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I thought those <laughs> lines were so funny. And, and you know, uh, Lo Wang had so many funny lines and, and a funny name. I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 Um, a- ancient hilarious. Chinese secrets. I think oh, that was one of them. Yeah. You know, that was from yeah. an American TV commercial, right? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a uh, a product for, it was a laundry detergent of some kind. I can't remember mm. what the name of it was at the moment. But it was for getting the ring out of your collar. You know, the, I guess the, the, the dirt stain, sweaty stains you get in your in your white shirt collar. And um, the, the lady in the commercial said, uh, oh, from the, the dry cleaners who, who got the shirt so clean, they said, ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> and so at the end, she's using this product and gets it done. She goes, ancient Chinese secret, huh? And that's and then uh, that's wow, that that's from. amazing. And that and that adds to the kind of playfulness and the fun of like 3D Ram's characters. Yeah, but you had to be an old fart like me from America to get that, you know? Because did it ever yeah, make yeah, sense I to you? Totally it ancient Chinese yeah. secret. Did you get it? See, no, I, I, I didn't get it, but I knew that because I've watched a video about you know uh, Shadow, you know Shadow Warrior and stuff. Yeah. So I, I've heard the story behind it before so i actually interestingly did know that but it, it's mm-hmm. kind of like one of those things like like you say if you're older and from america or you know like kind of you know a young adult or whatever it would make sense to you but if you're mm-hmm. a child or a teenager and you don't know it's just funny because it's funny anyway do you know what mm-hmm. i mean so those those games have just got such a big wide appeal and then obviously they're violent and action-packed you know which really helps um but our next question is about big the cat um you've played him for a very very long time and you know um he kind of came (laughs) (laughs) he came not too long after uh duke nukem how did that come about uh how did you get that gig and you know what was that like all of a sudden you're in the sonic franchise well i as i recall it was a wednesday afternoon when my phone rang in uh, my production studio at the radio station. And it was Lonnie Manella at the other end of the phone. And she said, hey, I'm going to need you to be at a recording studio in Kearney Mesa. That's a little town in San Diego. I'm going to need you to be there Saturday morning to record some stuff for a video game we're doing. I said, oh, what uh, do, do you have sides for me? You know, the audition line. She goes, no, don't worry about it. We'll just we'll take care of it when you get here. Like, oh, do you have any artwork for me? Well, you'll see it when you get here. Don't don't even worry about it. I said, I don't have to audition. She said, no, I'm just going to cast you. Just be at the studio on Saturday morning. So I show up at the studio and there's Lonnie and there's Ryan Drummond and and, and Jenny Doulard and a few of my other friends who are in, in this game. And and when I walked in, she said, uh, have you ever heard of Sonic the Hedgehog? And I went, well, yeah, I play that game. It's fun. She goes, well, this this is a Sonic the Hedgehog game. And I was excited to think that, wow. Am I going to be the voice of Sonic? She said, no, you're going to be this guy. She shows me a picture of Big <laughs> the Cat. And of course I go, what the hell is that? She goes, that's mm. Big the Cat. And I say, hey, sure is that. W- what's the deal with him? He looks kind of dumb. She goes, good, you nailed it. <laughs> that is exactly it. He's kind of dumb. He's a little slow. And um, we need you to you know, give this guy a voice. So I get in the booth. And I put on my headphones and I can hear Japanese speak in the background across the telephone line. Mm. So uh, the, the director is uh, Lonnie's directing the session at this end. But the, the Japanese are on the other line from Tokyo, I believe. And um, Lonnie goes, OK, John, just read a couple of lines and let's just uh, let's try to dial in a voice. Oh, my foggy. I can't find my you don't look so good, little buddy. Where's my foggy? And I hear this chattering in Japanese in the phone in the background. Mm. 
And I wait a minute. And Lonnie goes, okay, that'll do. And I went, okay, uh, next voice. She goes, no, that'll do. They like that. I went, no, please let me do something else. I was just warming up. <laughs> she said, no, they, they like that voice. That's the one. So, you know, I, I've told fans over the years at conventions and such that I'm embarrassed, ashamed of the voice I gave to Big the Cat because it was so dumb. I didn't even get to, you know, dial it in. And um, fans took it the wrong way. They thought I hated the Big the Cat character, but I don't. I mean, I've played the games mm. and, and I think Big is kind of a good, uh, I don't know, kind of a side game. It kind of gets in the way of the whole thing, if you ask me, but a lovable character nonetheless. And um, so I don't hate Big the Cat. I just hate the voice I did for Big the Cat. And that kind of, you know, segues quite nicely into my the next question I was going to ask is, mm-hmm. you know, were you aware that Big the Cat, he's, he's got such a love-hate relationship with the fans? A lot of people, you know, dis, you know dislike him. And, and like you say, you think he's really stupid. He's dumb. And they just want to get, get those parts of the Sonic games he's in out of the way. But then some people right. adore him. You know, were you aware of that? You know, because you've played him quite a few times now, you know, in, you know, in all the Sonic Adventure games and Sonic Heroes and stuff like that. Well, you know how some people like cringe, <laughs> the cringe mm. factor? I, I yeah. think those are the people who really like Big the Cat because everybody else is like, oh, my God, what is this? Why are you wasting my time hunting for a frog? What is the deal? So, yeah, I think it's the cringe. It's cringe worthy, Big mm. the Cat. W- was there a different approach from the... Uh kind of Japanese um, developers as opposed to, you know, the American ones when it when it came to voice acting? Uh, couldn't really tell you that. I only ever dealt with Lonnie on uh, the casting of the games. I, I never dealt with any of the original developers or anything. So, you know, my knowledge of it is limited to the lines Big the Cat Red and, and E123 Omega, which yeah. was not acting. That was just reading. Yeah, he was the robot character, wasn't he? And he uh, just like you say, was just an automated kind of robot, wasn't he? Yeah, when you just speak like this on every line you have, this is not acting, you're just reading the typed words on the paper. <laughs> you know, that's that's not an acting gig. <laughs> that was a recording job. When, when we had uh, Lani on, she, she did a lot of like, you know, kind of action sounds and hoos and hahs and stuff like that. Oh, did you yeah, have yeah. to She's great do at much of that? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, how, how did you... How do you kind of put emotion and movement into a character with your voice? Um, I I learned from Lonnie. Uh, She demanded that I do, you know, a lot of physical movements, which I didn't want to do. In radio, I was trained to not wear clothes that would make a, you know, a sound or jewelry or any of that stuff. You don't want any Mm. additional noise in a recording studio. But she wanted me to move around and be physical. And, And a lot of the physicality lent you know, to the, the, the acting emotion. And of course, everything that's, you know, video games, when it's voice only, it has to be over the top. If people can't see your emotions, they can't see your face. You have to really go over the top with a voiceover to, uh, you know, express the, uh, the emotions that are going on. And uh, she taught me to do that very well, I think. Did you end up getting many gigs where it was just kind of hoos and hahs and kind oh. of like fighting <laughs> games or anything? Oh, sure. And and most of those, by the way, are always uh, kept to the end of the session, you know, the emotives, so that you don't blow out your voice before the session's over. I had experiences uh-huh. um, in various different games. Uh, back uh, when Sony was 989 Studios, I did the uh, Twisted Metal 4 game. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm pretty much the entire male cast of that game. Actually, Lonnie and I are the only voices in the entire game, I'm pretty sure. Um, but the one uh, part that I played, which was the sweet 
tooth spokes clown spokesperson. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sweet yeah. tooth spokes clown. Um, that one taught me what vocal stress was all about. Because after like five hours going, my master was the greatest in the universe. You know, you do that for four or five hours and laugh maniacally and such. And you're, you're going to end up at the end of the session sounding like this. And for two days after I spoke like this, because my voice was just shot. Mm. Um, and I've just had a flashback to that amazing series as well <laughs> as soon as you said that. You know. That that was a, a great game. You know, of all of the games I did, my kids only ever really played one, and that was Twisted Metal 4. They loved uh, shooting at each other while driving vehicles. And, uh, you know, my, my kids were never really big fans of any of my work, but they did like Twisted Metal 4 for some reason. <laughs> Maybe it was just uh, blowing each other up in cars and stuff would appeal to them. Exactly, exactly. Taking out that angst against their siblings, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So did you prefer playing goodies or baddies? Was there any particular roles which were really, really enjoyable, you know, or anything you wanted to kind of revisit and you'd look forward to that when that gig came up again? Oh, I don't mind being the hero. That's kind of cool. But I love playing the bad guy, like mm. uh, Jadis Heskel in... Um, yeah, um, um, bombshell. Mm. Heskel was a great character, a bad guy. In Ion Fury, I'm in that one as well. As, yeah, as, as, yeah, as Heskel. yeah. And 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 there's something about channeling that evil. That you know, I'm a nice guy. Everybody who knows me will tell you that I'm a kind, gentle gentleman. You know, nice guy. Yeah. Um, I don't want anybody to hate me ever. I want everybody to love me. Mm. But something deep inside allows me to channel. I think I know what it is. I have three ex-wives, so I think <laughs> I think I'm channeling my my hatred for a couple of them uh, when I do evil characters, and and I just think angry thoughts, and it seems to motivate me in mm. just the right way to uh, you know uh, emote that that evil tension mm. that uh, those characters require. Do you think you need to have a bit of a alter ego to do some of these characters, or there's a bit of <laughs> bit of you in in some of these characters oh, as well? There's a little bit of me in all of the characters I've played. Yeah, I was wondering what. So you didn't kind of uh, know about the whole video game and the people were pe- playing Duke Nukem. What was it like when you first went to a convention and kind of saw the reaction of of fans? Oh man, it blew me away. I could not believe that people knew my work in the video games and that they were such fans of it. You know, to this day, I go to conventions, right? Well, you know, the last couple of years, uh, we've gone nowhere. But uh, I have a bunch of conventions lined up this year. And and, and I'm just amazed that after all this time, there are still fans of these games. I'm so glad there's retro gaming fans. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Retro Hour, uh, for (laughs) keeping it alive, you know, because I, I really enjoy... Uh, traveling to conventions and meeting fans. Meeting fans is the number one thing for me because I know I would be nobody but just another radio voice, you know, a radio and TV commercial voice if it weren't for the fans. Uh, They made me who I am. What was the first convention you went to then? And uh, kind of were you prepared and did you do a talk or anything or did you just turn up and get mobbed? (laughs) No, I actually do panels. I I prepare for panels. I think the, the first most overwhelming convention I ever did was the uh, San Diego Comic-Con here where I live. And um, it it was just overwhelming by the number of people. I I love to be in front of a crowd, but I don't like to be in a crowd. 
And you cannot be at San Diego Comic-Con without being in a crowd. I mean, elbow to elbow. And it's a little disconcerting for me. Um, but but I am an attention whore. So I love being in front of people and showing off. And I think that's part of uh, my radio background, too. Because we used to do remote broadcasts, you know, where you'd be at a at a dealer, at a car dealer, or at a, a Montgomery Ward back in the day. You know, that's a department store uh, where we do our radio show live and people would come out to see me and and I would just light up, you know, shaking the hands and smiling and, and being that nice guy everybody wants to talk to. And I think that that prepared me for convention appearances because I really love meeting the people and being in front of them and sharing stories. It's it's it, I, I owe it uh, again everything to fans they they made me who i am i'd just be another voice if it weren't for the fans who bought those games and loved my characters mm. it is amazing when you when you physically meet people that have enjoyed it well like we do this podcast kind of at home and remotely and then we go mm -hmm. out to shows and meet people and it's just it gives you an energy doesn't it it does and and they are wonderful for the most part fans give you unconditional love it, it you you've got to find it amazing too don't you when they come out and they go oh my god i listen to you all the time i love your show I, I, yeah I, i'm always like, shocked wow. like oh somebody listens to us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right i've worked at a few radio stations that were so bad that i thought nobody listens to this crap <laughs> <laughs> yet i do a remote broadcast and they want to come out and get a bumper sticker and shake my hand so what's the weirdest voiceover request you've ever had from a fan or even from a company. <laughs> Any come to mind? Oh, my God. There's one in general I couldn't believe. There is a company back in um other side of this country, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. They had me do a Duke-like voice mm. and saying a word that sounded really naughty if you say it the wrong way. And for the life of me, I cannot remember it right now. But I couldn't believe it was actually going to go on the air because it sounded so inappropriate. I think the best gig ever came back in uh, 2016 when we were having uh, presidential elections in this country. Uh, that's when uh, Donald Trump was running for president. Yeah. Well, anyway, in uh, November of 2015, an ad agency in Los Angeles that I did uh, quite a bit of work for contacted me and said, hey, the leading candidate for president in the Republican Party would like you to be his voiceover. It took me all of a second to say no. And they went, well, John, this is a national ad campaign. This is what all voice actors want. It pays big money. I said, yeah, but no. Um, no, that goes against my principles. I will not be the voice for Donald Trump's campaign. So a few days later, I posted on Facebook how I don't like to turn down work. But in this case, doing the voiceover for Donald Trump's campaign, I just couldn't do it. So uh, go figure, it went viral. People started going, oh, my God, the Duke Nukem guy won't do Donald Trump's ads. And people were loving this because a lot of people do not like Donald Trump, including me, obviously. And so uh, Reddit picked it up and the Huffington Post uh, picked it up. And about two weeks later, I get a call from a big ad agency in New York City saying, hey, um, first of all, I'm the creative services director at this company. I don't want to name him. And he said, uh, I'm a Duke Nukem fan. I went, oh, cool. Is that why you're going to, why you're calling today? He goes, yeah, we want you to be the voice of the Bud Light Party, which was a big uh, ad campaign for Anheuser-Busch. And um, we think since you uh, didn't want to be the voice for Donald Trump, you might be perfect for us. And so here's the moral of the story. I stuck to my my principles. I wouldn't do the Donald Trump ads. And 
in return, what happened was I got the Bud Light party ads, which paid enough money for me to live on for three or four years. Oh, wow. So, so it kind of worked out in the end then. Boy, um, did it ever. So always stick to your principles. That's the moral of this story. Totally. Like, um, I was wondering, was there a change when it went from those crunchy 8-bit samples to like 16-bit and, and, and CD audio quality? Did you kind of have to change up your studio or kind of make sure the audio was like a bit better because extra stuff could be picked up in the background? Well, no, because, you know, the studios were always, um, well, they're not generally soundproof, but sound dead, yes, and very quiet, right? We don't like to put computers in the studio. We don't want any uh, motors running, any fans. We don't want that. We want a totally quiet studio. And that was the case back in the day when we were recording 8-bit, too, um, because, remember, these studios were all for commercial uh, broadcast production. And uh, it made no difference. They were crunching it to 8-bit. So when they started doing 16-bit, nothing changed in the studio at all. Just, the you know, the outcome of the audio was just much better. That was the only difference. So would you would you do it uh, remotely back then, or would you go to an actual physical studio and do it? Uh, well, when I was doing those games, it was actually in the studio I worked in every day at a radio station in San Diego. And ah, they so had, you already had the facilities to kind of do it, yeah. Oh, yeah, and they had top, you know, top broadcast quality audio. So, yeah, it was state-of-the-art back then. Now my home studio is state-of-the-art. So, you know, the hell with radio stations. I don't need them. <laughs> we're the same. We're, we're, we're both from home now as well because uh, of, obviously, because of COVID. And, and, and we were doing a radio studio before. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, oh, yeah, and it's so got- much easier today than it used to be. I remember when I built my first studio in 1996, uh, it cost me about ten grand because mm. all the equipment had to be broadcast equipment. Nobody was buying recording studio equipment unless you were building a real recording studio. Mm. So the mixing console alone was four or five thousand dollars. Neumann microphones were a couple of thousand dollars. The processing gear, uh, the recording. Uh, equipment, all very expensive back in the day. Now, of course, you know you can build a home studio for like less than five hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how how times mm-hmm. have changed and stuff. Yeah, so, and, um, and it's so much smaller too. The equipment oh, yeah. is so much smaller than it used oh, to yeah, be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just in the corner of my spare bedroom. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, last kind of bits on Duke Nukem mm-hmm. was was Duke Nukem Forever as chaotic behind the scenes as we were led to believe? Was it crazy for you? Were you, you know, no, 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 it it wasn't crazy for anybody. It sat on the shelf, literally Mm. doing nothing because uh, 3D Realms back in the day, um, I hate to say it, but I I think George, he, he, he did not budget well and he could not continue the franchise. You know, the game sat there and then they went through the all that crap with what game engine to use and how do we, you know, Blah, 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 blah. Tech, 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 tech. Yada, mm. yada, yada. Until finally, uh, Randy Pitchford at uh, at Gearbox Software said, yeah, I'm going to buy that and make that game because he was a fan of Duke Nukem. Yeah. And so he bought it and he went, you know, let's not change the game engine and all that crap. Let's just get it out there to keep the character alive. So I, I, I owe a great deal to Randy Pitchford for doing that. Yeah. Um, he, he kept it alive. He got Duke Nukem Forever out there. Uh, the critics... It wasn't modern day Call of Duty. It wasn't uh, the game engine they wanted. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But you know, most of the uh, the critics were were young twenty something punks who never actually even played Duke Nukem 3D. 
And quite yeah. frankly, I, I, I think Duke Nukem, Duke Nukem Forever was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'd I, never played a video game that was so interactive before. Me and our other co-host, Dan, we, we were both talking about Duke Nukem Forever not too long ago on the, on the podcast, and we were saying, mm-hmm. it's not a bad game. It, it really isn't. It really isn't it's anything. Not. There's not. There's not really anything that bad about. It. There's nothing bad about it. It was just like you say. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It came out during the Call of Duty hype. You know, the peak Call of Duty hype. And if it wasn't yeah, Call of Duty, yeah. nobody cared. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it came and, out way too late. It is definitely a 1998 video game. Yeah, that just sat on the shelves for too long. And it's a shame it couldn't have been released back around like 2000, 2001. Yeah. That would have been great. And of course, now there's the the, the Duke Nukem Forever leak from 2001 that's out mm-hmm. there now. That, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what, what we, we were, were covering. Yeah, that's what yeah. we were covering, yeah. Ah, yeah, I got a lot of, uh, I've been fielding a lot of questions and uh, text messages and, and, and direct messages lately from people going, hey, can you voice this for my mod? Because now we can mod Duke Nukem Forever. And I'm like, uh, well, no, because I don't know what the licensing is on this stuff, and I'm not going to get in trouble over it. So, and you guys are all risking it too. If you if you do mods and you put them out there, and 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 you you know, I don't know. Uh, I would be very yeah. careful, is what I'm saying. Uh, don't try to release isn't anything. It? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was wondering about one series that was uh, totally awesome, actually, uh, which was Postal. We had a uh, Vince Desi on the podcast and i think he was one of the funniest guests that we've had what was your kind of relationship with uh running with scissors and uh what did you think of the postal series uh well i've only interacted with mike jarrett so um oh yeah i had a good time doing it i'm going to be honest here and they're not going to like this if they hear this they're they're not going to be happy with me but uh, they hired me to be the voice of uh postal dude for you know the, the number four game no regrets and i was thrilled i thought oh this is great um, and, and the way that came about, by the way, if you're interested, um, my old friend David Eddings, who was the voice of Claptrap in the original Borderlands games. Yeah. Um, he and Mike were good friends. And Mike said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to do this voice. And David recommended me for it. So um, I said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Give, give him my number when David called me and said, you know, are you interested? So Mike calls me and he goes, yeah, we want you to be the voice of Postal 4, dude. And I was like, okay, cool. So I did some research and I found out, oh, yeah, that was the game that was banned in Australia back in 1997. Yeah, this is something I want to do because it's outrageous. And, you know, Duke Nukem yeah. was outrageous. It kind of goes with my brand, you know. So um, I did the voice and 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 up until the final release of it, I was very pleased to be the new voice of Postal Dude. And then a few weeks back, I see that, oh, now you can play with the original voice actors, too. So you got uh, uh, okay. Rick Hunter and uh, what was the other fellow's name? Sorry, I forget because I don't know him. But oh, great. So now I'm not just the voice of Postal Dude. I'm one of the voices for the new game. That's that's uh, that's kind of a low blow to yeah, me. You didn't yeah. need to bring those guys back to be in this game. They had their time in in the spotlight with that game. Why the hell are you and, splitting and to, me up with to, that? To be fair, it was a bit of a, a mess of a release. That one was as well when it mm-hmm. eventually came out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I felt disrespected by it. And so I'm not even, uh, I didn't even participate in the uh, promo videos that they were putting out because quite frankly, I felt dissed. So there was, there was a postal movie and there was always rumors of a Duke Nukem movie. Did anything <laughs> ever get off the ground there? Did you ever know anything about it actually happening or coming close? To happening? Oh, I've, I've read the script. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Oh yeah, there's actually a script, and yes, there. As far as we know, there is still a plan. Um, I doubt that John Cena is going to be in it at this point because I I don't see it happening anytime soon. Um, for goodness sake, they're still working on the Borderlands movie that's not even mm. out yet. And, uh, you know, until that hits and they see how it does. Traditionally, you know, uh, movies based on video games don't do well at the box yeah. office. And uh, I got to be honest with you, if they ever make a Duke Nukem movie, and it's not just because I want the lead role, it's because the only way to really do a Duke Nukem movie is to make it CG and mm-hmm. R-rated. Okay, and you have to bring in a sidekick who uh, brings Duke up to date and keeps him on the straight and narrow because of, you know, the the me too. And, and, you know, yeah, and all of that. Um, And I think that his son, Deuce, would be the perfect sidekick to help him do that. Did you know that Duke Nukem has a son? I didn't know that. Did you know that, Ravi? No, (laughs) he does. He does. And his son's name is his son's name is Deuce. And so if Deuce Nukem, who is now like, oh, let's say late 20s. Uh, or early 30s could be the sidekick to duke in a cg movie that there's comic relief right there yeah uh, it, it, it lends itself and now this is not a part of the script that i read by the way uh mm-hmm. they have no intention of doing the movie the way i want to they want to do a live action duke nukem movie yeah. so clearly there has to be an actor playing the part who's not gonna sound like duke nukem yeah um so you know and, Personally, I I doubt it's ever going to happen. I bet I'm dead before they make a Duke Nukem movie. Yeah, I, I just I can't see. I can see the whole John Cena thing, but I just can't. I can't see it being Duke Nukem. They'll make it too. So they'll try and it'll just be too serious, and it just it oh just yeah, won't work. and they'll PG thirteen the damn thing. Yeah. And it won't be gritty and edgy like it needs to be. No, I could see it like Escape from New York or something, where he's yeah. kind of a, an outcast of not really with that time, you know, kind mm-hmm. of coming in and just being brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It needs to be really edgy and gritty. And uh, I, I think Hollywood will totally screw it up if they make a Duke Nukem movie anyway. Yeah, totally. So recently there's been a revival of old school game styles with titles like Rad Rogers, which you worked on. Are you noticing more work doing those kind of older style voice voiceovers for kind of modern retro games? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I hope to see more of those come around. I like that kind of work, mm-hmm. um, especially because I'm an old guy now. I'm 61 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm older and I don't keep up with it as much. So when the older retro kind of games come around, uh, they they grab my attention, you know, and, and that's something I want to be a part of. Uh, today's games, there's a lot of young soldier roles in games, and I, I that's not me anymore. I can be the commanding officer or whatever, but I'm not the young guy who's, you know, Steve yeah. Bloom being a, you know, <laughs> a soldier. <laughs> that That's not my thing anymore. Uh, I have to pick and choose carefully the roles that I even audition for these days because I yeah. don't want to be cast in a role that I'm not comfortable with, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I can especially afford to pick and choose but, you know, sometimes there are roles that uh, they want me to audition for and I don't feel that I'm suited for it. And I'll just reply with pass when the yeah. email audition comes in, you know. Well, were you surprised with Ion Fury and like how it is just so absolutely old school? And did you think, wow, there's an actual market for this and is this going to yeah, sell? You, you know, know? <laughs> I, I didn't know if there was a market for it or not. I was hoping it would do much better than it did sales wise, because I thought it was pretty damn cool. 
graphics yeah, were same. wonderful. The storyline was good. I thought Jadis Heskel was badass. <laughs> well, because I played the part. But I, I thought it was a very good game. I'd like to see more like that. Uh, and, and more of the uh, role-playing games like um, This is the Police. That was a fun one for me to do. Uh, because I had to really sink myself into the character and be in that mindset the whole time. And uh, I, I'd love to get more games like that. Are there any sort of voiceovers you've done for games that never got released in the end, you know, or were just kind of like lost over the years or anything like that? Um, no, I think every, every game I've recorded actually came out. And, and, and I mean, there's there are projects that I'm not happy with. Mm. Um, sometimes there's bad directing that makes me sound bad <laughs> uh, right off the top of my head. Um, what was it called? Evil zone. Oh mm. God. That was so terrible. <laughs> oh, the acting is so bad in it, but I had to read the way the director wanted me to read it. So it's just terrible. Uh, check out evil zone. When you get a chance, I play uh Danziva, and he's just <laughs> ridiculous, just ridiculous. So you want to fight me? Then fight me. Uh, lines like that. Sounds like yeah. anime. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Are the, oops, I said something negative about anime. Shame on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, are there any voice actors um, other than Lani as well that you you really look up to in the video game industry? Look up to? I mean, puts me in kind of a tough position here because no, as a voice actor, I know my range and what I can do. And I, I all of my friends who are voice actors, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are voice actors. Mm. Um, we all do about the same thing, to be honest with you. You know, you, yeah. you work up a voice, you, 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 you fix it to the to the way the director wants to hear it. Right. Because keep this in mind when when auditioning for a video game, the casting director and the writers, producers, they don't know what the voice is until they hear it. Yeah. Right. They may have an idea of the age and the ethnicity and the you know, the dialect and all that kind of stuff, but they don't know what the voice is until they actually hear it. And that's all about just dialing in the character in the studio or in your audition. And yeah. we all do that. All of us voice actors have the ability to change our voices around and, 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 and hopefully be able to act. And um, so as far as looking up to other voice actors, I have to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. Mel Blank. You remember him? Yeah. Looney Tunes. Yeah. Exactly. Mel Blank is somebody I always looked up to. Uh, Dawes Butler, the older voice actors um, from back in the day when I was growing up from cartoons, because they would do seven or eight voices for yeah. just one cartoon. I go, wow, I can't tell the difference. I can't tell that that's the same actor. And yeah. that's what I've always admired. A lot of the voice acting I hear today, uh, I immediately know it's one of my friends. I go, oh, there's that guy doing that voice. And, yeah. oh, there he is again in that role in that game. And it's all the same voice. It's not as impressive as it was when I was a kid hearing Mel Blanc and his amazing uh, uh, body of work. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Now, I, I understand that completely. I mean, and, I'm, I'm um, not dissing today's voice actors. I, I no. don't mean, I, I'm just saying there's nobody that I really look up to today like I yeah. did back then. I guess yeah. that's yeah. the best way to put it. Yeah, no, I understand that. So um, kind of to wrap things up, do you have any sort of future projects coming up or any games, game characters you'd love to redo or revisit in the future? Um, well, unfortunately, NDAs don't let me say a lot, but I can Fair tell enough. you that um, <laughs> I have a lead role in a, uh, a hand-drawn uh, animated uh, 
full-length feature that'll be on Netflix this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you any. I'll tell you one thing about it, and I probably shouldn't say this. I'm a bear. Okay. I'm going to play a bear. And um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. What else do we want to talk about? Of course, League of Legends uh, voice yeah. packs are available now. Mine's only $10 US, $9.99, actually. Um, I'd love for more people to get into that. Um, I, I have convention appearances coming up, and I guess the most important thing, if you're going to give me the uh, the chance to talk about whatever I want to talk about, is uh, after years of doing conventions, I started my own convention four years ago. Mm-hmm. It's called King Con Cruise, John St. John's King Con Cruise, where you can sail with the king, baby. And we take a cruise ship from uh, Florida to the Bahamas each oh, wow. uh, February and March. And uh, we we have a lot of great people coming along on our cruises each year and guests every year. A lot of my voice actor friends come along for uh, no talent fee, but just to have the free vacation and to hang out with me. And so, like, uh, next year we'll have D.C. Douglas, Wes Johnson. We'll have uh, Richard Epcar, who's all things the Joker. Yeah. Um, We've had uh, several guests in the past who are big time, and uh, we'll have many more in, in the future. But the great thing about my cruise, my convention, is that, not that it's on a cruise ship, which is really freaking cool, but that I added an element that you cannot get at any other convention, and that is you're literally having all of your adventures and meals with the guests every day. Yeah. So at the end of the week, we are literally your real personal friends. I mean, I go kayaking and snorkeling and rock climbing and play laser tag and drunken mini golf with the fans every day. And we have dinner in the main dining hall together every night. And at the end of the week, I feel like I have 100 to 150 brand new personal friends because of the cruise. So if you're interested, check out kingconcruise.com. I am actually going to type this down because my wife has always wanted to go on a cruise and she is obsessed with Florida. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good plan. And if you guys come along, man, I'll I'll buy your liquor for you. There we go. (laughs) I I can imagine that the bar is probably the funnest sounding thing at night with all the voice actors in there. We we have a mascot uh, who's not Duke Nukem, but uh, uh, Jonesy the Party Porpoise. It's this, (laughs) this guy who dresses in a dolphin costume. And he leads the pub crawl every night on the cruise ship. And it's a crazy ass thing to do, but it's so much fun. It's the most fun I've ever had in my life is the the King Kong cruise. Um, right oh. now, by the way, our website is just about to be updated. Right now, it says that we postpone this year's cruise to next year because of COVID. Uh, we were scheduled to go out February 28th of this year. But mm-hmm. as you might recall, that was not a good time to resume. So yeah. I made the decision to postpone it for a year. So next year, February 28th through March 4th, uh, will be our next cruise. And our new website will be up on the air uh, probably about a week from now. And yeah. all the details and all of the information you could ever want is right there. It's a Royal Caribbean cruise. And uh, they're they're top notch as far as cruise lines go. So it, it's so much fun. I hope to keep growing it and make it something I do every year until the day I die. It looks amazing. Well, it sounds uh, absolutely awesome, and uh, I'm so glad that you can kind of do it again. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, get back into it. Well, John, it's been an amazing hour, and, uh, you know, it's just flown by. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It did go by really fast, didn't it? And I could spend another hour with you guys. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Oh. It's been really great. This is it. I, I was a little bit 
I don't know, like starstruck at the start, like I'm talking to, to Duke Nukem. Would you like to talk to Duke? I can bring him in. Oh, God. Uh, totally. <laughs> if, if Duke could say, you're listening to the Retro Hour podcast. Oh, that would be good. Oh, yeah, baby. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast. If you don't, you're a dork. Hail to the Retro Hour podcast, baby. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. 